Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. And hello, today I'm here with my colleague, Neil Seldman, who directs ILSR's Waste to Wealth program. And we're joined by a great group from Gainesville, Florida. Amanda Waddell and Nina Bhattacharya are the co-chairs of Zero Waste Gainesville. And Sarah Goff is the co-founder and executive director of the Repurpose Project, where Amanda is also the director of Zero Waste. So welcome everybody. Howdy. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I think a good place to start would be if each of you could maybe talk very briefly about your organizations, your background, and why you decided to get involved with reuse. Let's start with Sarah. Okay. I started the Repurpose Project 10 years ago. I had already been involved in reuse, but When I came to Gainesville, I saw there was very little infrastructure for getting a lot of usable material back into the hands of the public. Thrift stores do a great job of certain materials, but there's so many different types of materials that are overlooked in the reuse market. So I decided to start a combination. It's pretty much a creative reuse center and architectural salvage, both big areas of the reuse market that needed to see improvement and more reuse happen. Amanda or Nina, feel free to jump in. I can jump in real quick. This is Amanda. So I've been doing a lot of zero waste work as a volunteer for years and years. I did it in Lafayette, Louisiana. And then when I moved back to Gainesville in 2017, I got on board with Nina to help out to run zero waste Gainesville. And I really realized that reuse is a big part of zero waste a while back and that we really need to emphasize that. So in 2000. 19, I talked to Sarah about starting a zero waste department at the Repurpose Project to expand what we do with zero waste through her creative reuse store and the nonprofit. So between Zero Waste Gainesville and the Repurpose Project, we really hit on so many aspects, possibly all the aspects of zero waste in Gainesville, Florida. And that's a pretty exciting thing. Thanks, Nina. I'm the co-chair of Zero Waste Gainesville with Amanda. And we got started with Zero Waste Gainesville in 2017. And our mission is really twofold. So we educate the community about things they can do to reduce waste in their lives. So lifestyle choices, but we also advocate for zero waste policies at the local level, both at our city and county. And so we really try to focus on all those key elements of waste upstream and downstream, which of course reuse is a really big part of that. In addition to just rejecting materials outright, repurposing them, and then we touch upon those downstream actions such as recycling and composting as well. Maybe I could just add at this time that at the end of our broadcast, we will post references of reuse activity and technical reports on reuse, the reuse's impact on the local economies happening all over the country. So we're highlighting Repurpose Center in Gainesville, but it is typical of a lot of activity, making a, a great economic as well as sociological impact on communities and it is growing very, very rapidly, uh, stimulated by the COVID experience we've all gone through. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Um, we'll have that list of resources. We'll talk about more later, but they'll all be in the show notes for this episode. You can find them at ilsr.org. 
So Nina, to go back to what you're working on in Gainesville right now, could you talk about a campaign to keep pay as you throw in Gainesville? What, what is, what does pay as you throw mean and then what's happening on the ground right now? Sure. Yeah. So for listeners who are not as familiar with with pay-as-you-throw. It's a program which essentially allows people to pay for the amount of waste that they generate. And so what that means is that here in Gainesville, we have different trash cart sizes and people pay a lesser amount for a smaller trash cart size. And then that progressively gets larger with the, the size of their trash cart increasing. And so this program has been in effect since 1994 in Gainesville. And it became an effect because, you know, we as a community recognize the value of allowing people to really pay for that trash cart size. And that when people choose smaller trash cart sizes, they produce less waste, thus also helping us in our zero waste efforts. So um, just to give you a little bit of background about the issue. This program has been in effect, like I mentioned, since 1994 with really little input. You know, it seemed to be going along very well and, and people use their different size cards. The city of Gainesville recently established a Office of Equity and Inclusion, which is a really important office to have and to have staffed, where they basically look at program policies, they look at contracts that the city enters into to evaluate those items and make sure that equity is considered. We're not overly burdening our low-income communities. And so the city's Office of Equity and Inclusion did an initial analysis of our waste management contract, which is going out to bid shortly. And they had found that this program seemed to be inequitable because our low income communities tended to have larger cart sizes and then were overly burdened with those increased costs for the cart sizes. So there's a really big concern there. And so as part of this analysis, they came forward with a recommendation that the city move to a flat rate system for cart sizes. So everyone would be paying across the board the same price for their waste. And so based off this recommendation from the city's Office of Equity and Inclusion, the commission voted 5-2 to eliminate the pay-as-you-throw program and to instate a flat rate system. Well, Zero Waste Gainesville was really, you know, frustrated with that decision. We, again, see the value completely in terms of the pay-as-you-throw system. It's vital to our waste reduction efforts. And we also knew that the program could be tailored and made flexible to address any issues or concerns about equity. So that very same day this vote took place, we convened. There was Amanda, myself, and my husband's also really involved locally on campaigns and activist issues. And we discussed what we needed to do to bring forward the things that could be done to make the program equitable and to encourage the city commission to reconsider this vote and reinstate the pay-as-you-throw program. So I'm happy to go into some of those details of the actions we took now, if that works, or if you have any other questions. Yeah. First of all, this is a, a very important issue for across the country. Cities like Baltimore and D.C. are considering pay-as-you-throw, and there is deep concern for the impact on low-income and moderate-income families and, and households. So, Nina, could you start with the status now? Was the new law repealed, or is it still a political battle going on? 
So in our campaign efforts, we were successful in getting the city commission to reconsider that vote. So after our outreach and education campaign, they reconsidered that unanimously. And they basically said that we would like to move forward again with the pay-as-you-throw system, but then come back to the table in the summer to discuss you know, how we can look at ways to make it more equitable. So they repealed their original decision to basically eliminate the pay-as-you-throw program, but they want to have further conversations at this point. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on turning things around. Um, you're in my experience with pay as you throw, there are many different ways to protect low-income people, renters and or homeowners, so the system can work. I will stay in touch with you because the results of how you modify your system to accommodate low-income people will be very interesting to the rest of the country. So we'll be staying in touch with you on that, and I congratulate you for accomplishing what you've done so far. Any information, either now or as you contemplate the new policies, we would appreciate those details. Absolutely. So our role will definitely be and, and continues to be meeting with commissioners, educating our community as to the benefits of pay-as-you-throw and the ways to make it an equitable program. And so we will be putting forward recommendations and have been putting forward rec recommendations to the city commission as to how they can adopt different strategies to make it an equitable program. You know, for us, of course, education and outreach is always key. We know that there are plenty of people in our community that don't even know that there's a pay-as-you-throw system in place and that they can get a smaller trash cart and pay less. So that's first and foremost in our mm -hmm. minds to really have a targeted campaign to do that. And that should be led by the city and their solid waste department. And then also from there, there are other strategies such as waiver systems for those who really need help to be able to pay for their, their waste. That could be potentially something that's put forward. We've essentially put together like a list of recommendations to the, the commission to consider at this point. I'm going to well, say oh. goodbye, actually, if you're going to be kind of transitioned to reuse, but I just thank you so much for having us. Terrific. And thank you for the information and for your work, of course, Nina. Absolutely. It's nice meeting you all virtually. Okay. <laughs> Thank thanks. you. All right. We'll be back in just a minute with more about zero waste efforts in Gainesville from our other guests, Sarah and Amanda. But first, we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to our show. If you're enjoying this conversation, I hope you'll consider heading over to ILSR.org slash donate to help support us. Your donation makes this podcast possible, as well as all the work that we do here at ILSR. You can visit ILSR.org slash donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And while you're there, you might want to check out the other shows in the ILSR podcast family. We've got shows that cover everything from broadband to composting. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Turning to Sarah and Amanda, so you both work on the Repurpose Project. Sarah, could you talk about what the Repurpose Project is and how did it get started? Yeah. So my background before starting the Repurpose Project was creative reuse, which is pretty much arts and crafts and, and the small little things that can be incorporated and repurposed into other things. So a lot of school supplies, art supplies, any sort of random thing that has value that you don't see in a traditional thrift store. And then I met a fellow that was already working in Gainesville doing deconstruction. And so he was really passionate about architectural salvage, which is a huge part of the waste stream that isn't getting reused. Excuse me, I, I must interrupt. I want to name the people you work with, the wonderful people, the Bearded Brothers Deconstruction Company of Gainesville, 
And Mike Myers, who I believe is now retired, was one of the founders of that, uh, a great zero waste person and a great deconstruction person. I just wanted to mention his name. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we met each other and we're sort of a odd pair to start <laughs> to start it, but it really did make a lot of sense with his background and my background and we just combine it. And I think the combination of architectural salvage with creative reuse makes a lot of sense because creative reuse doesn't bring in a lot of funds and architectural salvage does. So by combining them, we are able to make an organization that is self-funded. And I think that that's important to consider because there's a lot of things that should be getting reused that don't bring a lot of income in. And by having some reuse items that are revenue generating, they can also subsidize some of these other important things that are really useful for the community to reuse, um, especially the supplies that teachers come in for and students come in for. We want to provide that service and being able to have higher revenue items help us be able to provide that service. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about kind of your relationship with the local economy and your workforce and what impact that has? Yeah, we we started small and we've just continued to grow and it seems exponential, our growth. And that really shows that what we're offering is is very needed and, and desired. You know, when we started 10 years ago, it was all volunteer run. And pretty quickly, we realized we needed someone there full time. So we hired me <laughs> and now we're at 22 people, I believe. Wow. We have about 100 to 200 sales per day. We're open six days a week and our parking lot is constantly full. So, and our warehouse, our building right now is full. So we just purchased a second location. So we are expecting even quicker growth this year. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we double all of our numbers within the next two years. Sarah, I've heard you speak before, and I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, you started with 1,000 square feet, you moved to 3,000 square feet, and now you're jumping to this vast warehouse of 100,000 square feet. All of that happened in 10 years. Could you just uh, give us a little bit of information on how you financed this purchase of your new warehouse? Yeah, well, we originally thought that we had a bank loan. We talked to our bank that we've been banking with for 10 years, and they gave us a loan amount, which was not enough for the building. So we launched a fundraising campaign, and we were absolutely blown away by the public support. We quickly raised $150,000 in 60 days. And during that time, the bank loan actually fell through, which was very uh, hard to handle after raising so much money from so many people. We probably had over 500 individual donors for that $150,000. It really is an amazing story and it shows the power of our community and divesting and investing in local organizations because within a week of learning that our bank loan had fallen through, we were able to get seven private lenders to lend us money and make up the difference of the bank loan. And not only that, the lenders 
were really trying to work with us to come up with favorable terms that would help us succeed in the long run. So whereas the bank was saying, you know, prove to us that you're not gonna fail so that we don't lose our investment. These individual lenders were saying, how can we structure this to make sure you succeed? So they offered to delay payment for seven months so that we could have seven months to get the, the organization and the new building set up before we had to start paying. It was a big learning moment for me to see that we don't necessarily have to rely on the big institutions for all our needs. We can really look to our community. There are people out there that have money that are willing to invest. And actually were thanking us for investing, being able to invest in a cause that they believed in. They didn't want to put their money you know, in big business and on Wall Street, but they saw that we were a good company that was making positive change in our community. And so they were willing to pull their money out of traditional lending situations and put it towards us. It, it's, a, it's a great story of community empowerment. And it's, of course, is a great message to you guys that you're doing the right thing. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure we, we uh, had Sarah talk about the financing. Thanks for the interruption, Jess. Oh, yeah, of course. That was great. So this question might be for Amanda or maybe for both of you. Curious if you have a relationship with the city or the county. If so, has it evolved over the years? We have been talking to the city and the county for a while. We haven't quite gotten there with them, although I do think it's around the corner. We actually just had a Zoom meeting with them today to talk about a possible pilot program to assess the value of the bulk material on the curb. I mean, I think most of us know that anytime you drive around, you're going to see stuff that's valuable at the curb. And so we're talking about doing a pilot program with them where we would drive ahead of the trash hauling trucks and pick up anything of value and actually give it a unique barcode and SKU number so that we can track it all the way through sales. So we have, we'll have an exact dollar amount of the usable material that's getting put at the curb. And I think that that's really exciting because there's just so much value there. Something that I, I always talk about is recycling, of course, is, is an amazing thing and we should definitely do that. But reuse is really overlooked as far as municipal services. And it's, it's something that is a big part of our waste stream as far as bulk, but it's also a valuable part of our waste stream and really beneficial to people in the community, especially like lower income members of the community to have access to low cost material. And without a system in place to collect it, store it and resell it, we need that system. And I think it makes a lot of sense for it to be part of municipal waste hauling services. I'd like to comment on that uh, two things. One, a study several years ago in Oregon, where uh, uh, Eugene, Oregon, Lane County, where there's a very active uh, reuse group, uh, St. Vincent de Paul of Lane County, their economic analysis showed that the existence of these 13 thrift stores in the county reduced the cost of living for low-income people by 3%, which is, uh, of course, uh, terrific. The other point is, if you have, if you succeed in having a pre-pickup before the, the trucks come, that could enhance the people putting out valuable, not antiques, but older things that if they put in the waste stream, of course, would be destroyed. So it's, it's a great innovative tactic. And I believe Gainesville years ago, didn't they, Gainesville, do something with set outs of electronic scrap for separate pickup? That may have been a different city. I, I may be missing that. 
But the concept was that people would put out their e-scrap separate from their waste so it could be picked up by a sheltered workshop for refurbishing. I actually had a kind of similar question. I was wondering if any other cities had, I've never heard of, of tracking the materials before to, to track that dollar amount. So I'm curious if, you, if you're if you like looking to somewhere else for inspiration for that, or if that's just something that that you're innovating. I actually haven't heard of that, but we started talking about with our new building, it's going to be mostly big bulky items. So we were looking into barcoding systems for that. And at the same time, we just happened to be talking to the city about data collecting for this bulk material. So it just kind of, I don't know, it might be out there, but I didn't, I haven't heard of it. it it's an excellent innovation. We'll, we'll be following you. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about kind of what your, your customer and supporter base is like, if you have any like particular great impact stories that you've had on the community or that you've seen or heard from customers. Yeah, and that's actually one of my favorite things about our store is that we have a very diverse customer base. And especially in the last few years, you know, the political climate is so divided. It seems like it's reuse is one of the few issues that isn't divided. It's it's really supported by everyone because I think everyone can see the value in reuse. Like there's no reason not to have more reuse. It benefits all the upstream issues with manufacturing. Some people care about that, but also like a lot of the downstream benefits of of being able to access this material. It's really, it feels like it's bringing the community together. And one of my favorite moments was at checkout. We had a line and it was just so diverse. It was almost like every single stereotype of a person was in line together and they were talking to each other about what they were going to do with the items that they were buying. And it just felt so good. Like we were much more than a store. We are like building this community, bringing people together that maybe wouldn't be brought together otherwise for the common goal of just like creating and salvaging and saving money. And I don't know. It's, I just feel like there's so much potential there um, on so many levels with expanded reuse. We had a, a reuse uh, webinar a few a month ago, and Elizabeth Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, presented. She wrote the book, The Repair Revolution, and uh, which I'll, I'll mention later on in our resources. But she went into several anecdotes about the profound impact that not only people who brought things in for repair, but the repair people, the relationship between the repair people teaching regular people how to fix their own things, it was an emotional, psychological event, as well as a reuse of that. Your, your stories are being multiplied thousands of times across the country. Yeah, that kind of reminds me too, like we recently picked up 100 washers and dryers stack units. That it was a, a remodel, a multi-apartment complex remodel. So many, I mean, they were all in working condition. But that was also very touching because a lot of the people that were buying them were low-income families that were going to laundromats. So it's, it goes beyond that. Like we're improving people's lives by making this stuff available. It's not just like we started off maybe thinking it was more of an environmental organization. And now we really see that it's a social organization. It, it really is helping people and it's helping animals because there's less habitat loss and we're also helping the environment.
it's really kind of exemplifying environmental justice principles, it sounds like, like you're covering all, all sides. <laughs> yeah, and that's something I guess I'll, I'll touch on the pay-as-you-throw thing too, because like I, they were really focusing on just the, the cost impact of the, the trash carts. But what I saw right away is the environmental injustice that's happening in upstream manufacturing and then also the waste disposal, like landfills are pretty much always located in low-income communities that have, there's a lot of equity issues as far as like the manufacturing stuff and the disposal of our stuff. And I think that that's really important to consider looking at the whole picture of equity and the waste stream. This is independent verification, but when we interview people like the Reuse Corridor and Central Appalachia, the impact, the psychological impact on workers, on people uh, in the community is just tremendous. And it, it really is needed at a time when community people need more resources and the waste stream is just uh, overwhelming us across the country. The more reuse, the better off we all are economically, environmentally, and, and socially. Sarah, could you talk about your workforce, how you recruit your workers, their, the wages, pay conditions, things like that, so people get a sense of what it's like to work in a reuse center? Yeah. You know, we're, we're constantly trying to increase our wages. Right now, our average wage is $14 an hour, and for this area, that's right at the living wage. And we're considerably higher than most of the other like big box retailers in our area. Definitely this new building and the types of material that we're going to be able to resell, we're hoping to be able to increase our wages. Florida passed a $15 minimum wage, which is a dollar increase every year for the next five years. And we're hoping that we can get there this year to starting wage $15 an hour but we want it to be more. So we're continuing to try to innovate and streamline and make things efficient. It's definitely reuse is a hard job. It's, it's overwhelming the amount of stuff and the types of material that we, we get in, but people really like working with us because it is rewarding. It's not a boring retail job. It's never boring. There's always something going on and we also are a little different in that we're as horizontal of a structure as we can be so we have meetings every week everyone has a lot of say over what's going on as far as making sure that the working conditions are good and everything's collaborative and we make sure to recognize people have different lives they're coming from different backgrounds and making arrangements so that it's a good place to work. I just, again, want to relate what you're doing in, in Gainesville to other uh, places across the country. Urban Ore, which is in Berkeley, California, they've got about 30 workers and they've been in business for quite a while, at least 30, 40 years. Dan Knapp and Mary Lou Vandeventer, who are the couple that own the uh, place, they are now selling the business to their workers. They've been negotiating for about a year and the workers are very enthusiastic about being uh, worker owners. And they also highly praise their staff. I, I wanted to say, tell one other uh, story that's related. Dan and Mary Lou came back east a couple of years ago and we drove over to Community Forklift, another uh, in Prince George's County uh, outside of DC. 
And I just stood there and watched these four, uh, Nancy and Ruth from Community Forklift, these four professionals with years and years of experience going over their different procedures and learning from each other. It was one of the most exciting lessons, uh, class lessons I ever had. It was quite wonderful. As you said, people are so friendly and willing to share information. It really is a statement about the culture uh, that the reuse industry is bringing to cities all across the country, rural areas as well as urban areas. You, you mentioned basically how many people provided support, uh, monetary support for the new move. Is there a sense of how many different customers you have? Do you, do you keep account? Obviously, people come in more than one time, but is there a sense of how many uh, people or families you're impacting in the Gainesville area? And related to that, do people come from outside of Gainesville to uh, shop at your, your store or bring, or bring donations? That's an interesting question. I haven't, you mean like as far as like unique visitors, like how many unique visitors? Uh, I bet I could probably run a report on our square, but I, I haven't done that. I'm not okay. sure. I, I do know that we have a lot of regulars. We have a lot of people that are there almost every day and, and a lot of people that spend hours and hours and hours there. I remember uh, outside of Pittsburgh, they, they have a very good reuse operation. And I sat in the parking lot and just saw it all day long, people going in and out, smiling because they're bringing stuff in and smiling because they got a bargain. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really it's a social and it's quite lovely to hang out at Urban Ore and I'm, I'm sure your, your place as well. One other factor that I've learned from other reuse operations all over the country is that many of the, a good part of their sales goes to other stores that are going to resell what they get, like you're supplying inventory for other restores. In fact, at a, a, a study just done by the University of Maine, they found out that sometimes 50 to 60 percent of sales from reuse stores go to other stores that are going to re, re, resell it, either refurbish it a bit more and resell it. And I was wondering if you kept data on that type of economic activity. We don't either, but this is all good points that we should be tracking. I mean, I do know that we have a lot of resellers that come in and we, we love that. We love that there's people that are helping us get it back into use. And, and we started doing a lot more eBay and Etsy because it's a lot easier to find the people who want this stuff online, especially for the repair community. Like if we get a broken sewing machine that parts are still useful for people who are looking for that specific part. And it's a lot easier to find that specific part online for the person that needs it. Yes, I, I do know that St. Vincent's uh, out in Lane County, Oregon, they use the internet for selling high-end pocketbooks and textiles that they've refashioned. And so it's a balance between using the internet and of course having a, a physical store. Is there an overlap between people who donate to you and people who buy? In other words, do people come in and give you stuff and then walk out with purchases? Yeah, I would say the majority of the people. Really? Yeah. Okay. And another related question, which I, again, I picked this up, how important reuse is from talking to other people around the country. Urban Ore just told us that through COVID, their business has really not doubled, but greatly increased because they've been, and I'm sure you have declared a, a, a necessary a store, a store to keep up. This year, they're going to pay about a quarter of a million dollars in sales tax. And I was wondering, you, I know, have to pay sales tax, but it is, isn't it a, a large contribution to the city? And I imagine there's a state sales tax as well. 
yeah, that's incredible. That's an <laughs> incredible sales tax number. Yeah, I, we, we're probably this year, if without the new building, our sales tax for the year would be about 36000 uh-huh. Well, uh, clearly, it's one of the few forms of recycling that pays sales tax. And of course, reuse is much more valuable than recycling because you're getting a product, not a raw material. Nina's not here now, but Amanda, did, did you have any comments about your work at the Repurpose Project? Yeah, I can add in a little bit about when we started a zero waste department at Repurpose Project. So one of our, our goals when you know I set up this department and Sarah and I figured out what we wanted to do is we wanted to work with schools. We wanted to create educational material. We wanted to work with small businesses and events. And so we really set up a program to tackle all of that. And working with the K through 12 schools pre-COVID, we had two agree to work towards zero waste. And part of that was creating education for them so they can learn about all the components of zero waste, including reuse and how important reuse is. And another component was getting school supplies to some of the classrooms that didn't have a lot of school supplies. The families couldn't bring them in, the families couldn't provide them. So I would take school supplies from the aisles at the Repurpose Project and take them into these classrooms. So we were able to supply them. We needed supplies for the students and the teachers. So that was part of what we were doing. We're starting to pick that stuff back up now because it was on pause because of COVID. So I'm working with a middle school and we're making the plans this summer for how we're gonna start back in August. And part of that is some curriculum that they're going to use that I created. It's a 10 part zero waste educational curriculum that I'm real excited that they wanna use. Another aspect is that before COVID we had piloted diverting the food scraps from the lunch in this middle school. And that got put on pause, but we're gonna start that back up in August. So we're lucky to have a community composter here in Gainesville that has agreed to pick up the food scraps weekly from this school. And since we already piloted, we kind of know that it can work. So we're just gonna have to start that back up again. So we think the actual practices of diverting food scraps, actual practices of recycling right, and then getting the education overlapping all of that on why we work towards zero waste, why reduce and reuse is so important, will really be valuable for these middle school students. So that's one program that I'm really excited about. Well, you're really turning into a all around zero waste if you're getting into composting. So you're, (laughs) uh, you're doing wonderful things there. I don't have any more questions. I would just like to take three minutes to go through the references uh, for other resources that people might want to, who watch this, uh, who read this podcast might want to go through. I'm just going to mention a few. I think people should contact and we'll provide this information. Professor Cynthia Eisenhower, I-S-E-N-H-O-U-R at the University of Maine. She's developing a whole array with her students and other professors data on the sociology and economics of reuse. There's a wonderful book that's been out for a year, The Repair Revolution by John Wackman and Elizabeth Knight. And again, there are, there are several, many references listed. I just wanted to say on building deconstruction, there's a wonderful report out from the city of San Antonio, Texas called Waste Within Our Walls. And it's a technical manual and policy manual for building deconstruction. 
And the final thing I'll mention, it will provide the Jess will provide this on the podcast, this list. There are numerous webinars uh, featuring reuse people, just like we're, we're doing here with the Repurpose Project. But I would say that we have on video recording at least 15 businesses, much like the Repurpose Center. They're all slightly different, but of course, they're all uh, focused on zero waste and reuse. So to conclude, I want to thank all Sarah, Nina, and Amanda for one, their hard work, two, for sharing the details with us. And I hope you don't mind if you get a lot of questions from around the country uh, when this podcast gets put up by Jess. Jess, did you have anything to, to conclude with? That's all I have. I'm uh, Sarah, Amanda, if there's anything else you want to add before we sign off. Otherwise, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Be well. We'll be in touch, everybody. Keep up the good work, as my dad would say. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.